Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on March 23rd, 2023. Now, a lot has happened since our last episode. We received a new batch of data on the U.S. labor market and on inflation, a new monetary policy decision came through from the Federal Reserve, and, oh yes, we got a flashback to the global financial crisis. Of course, I am talking about the swift collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, and the even swifter establishment of a regulatory backstop for depositors and banks. The two-year Treasury yield, which is perhaps the most sensitive to possible Fed moves, peaked at 5.07% on March 8th, and had plummeted to 3.84% just a week later, a historic move. The ICE B of A move index, a measure of bond market volatility, reached almost 200 basis points on March 15th, a level exceeded only in September 2008. Markets have settled down a bit since the, let's call it, unplanned merger of UBS and Credit Suisse, but there's still a lot going on. Now we have two guests to help explain what all this means, and how to think about what might come next. Joining us are Matt Bush, U.S. economist for Guggenheim Investments and a managing director in our macroeconomic and investment research group, and Evan Serdensky, a director and portfolio manager on our total return team. Welcome, Matt and Evan, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Now, guys, I want to start with the two elephants in the room. The market crisis brought on by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the Credit Suisse rescue, and the Fed decision that came out yesterday. So, uh, Evan, let me start with you and ask what you and the investment team have been doing in and around the banking sector, both leading up to the crisis and as it has played out. Well, thank you, Jay. It certainly has been an action-packed few weeks here. Our focus, as I'm sure you might expect, has been on, number one, evaluating the banking sector contagion risks in regionals especially, and then Number two, evaluating any of the knock-on effects that this crisis could have on uh, credit and on the economy more broadly. Leading into this crisis, our attention was really on the macro data, um, which as Matt, I'm sure will describe in more detail, we, we believe that the economy was slowing and uh, most of our focus in the portfolios was around doing rotations into higher grade sectors, preparing for this, this potential slowdown. But with regards to banking specifically, um, you know, historically, we've been relatively cautious on most regional banks from a pure credits perspective, given their commercial real estate exposures, which are quite high. Um, but clearly, this episode was unrelated to that. It, it Maybe another shoe to drop later, but um, this episode really exposed other cracks in the system. So while you can certainly say that Silicon Valley Bank was relatively unique, given their business model and risk management uh, techniques, um, we think what happened here was certainly a symptom of a few things. One is monetary policy, both the extreme easing and tightening that's occurred in a very shorter order. Uh, the Also, the unintended consequences of potentially some of the regulation that was put in place in the post-GFC world. Uh, but then, you know, really importantly is this disintermediation that's occurring in funding sources. When you have the yield curve invert the way that it has, it creates this capital rationing dynamic for um, for front-end buyers like depositors. So it's, it's really unclear from here how this all plays out, um, but we're certainly expecting greater volatility. But 
you know, that also means potentially greater opportunities as well. Well, thanks for that, Evan. Now, Matt, uh, yesterday we got the uh, FOMC decision. Uh, first, tell us what the decision uh, represented uh, in terms of the monetary policy at this execution at this stage, but also whether you think the banking crisis played any role in the decision. I would call what we saw a dovish hike, which is really what we had expected. Uh, and why was it dovish? Well, because the Fed went out of their way to highlight this banking stress, both in the statement and also to kick off the press conference, which I think is acknowledging that they understand that this is a major new risk factor that has introduced a lot of uncertainty. There was also a pretty important change to the language in the statement in terms of forward guidance, where the Fed changed from saying ongoing increases in the Fed funds rate will be appropriate to some additional policy firming may be appropriate. So they dialed back both the, the magnitude and the certainty around future rate hikes. Let me ask both of you this. Is this issue among banks something that is behind us? Or do you think there are more shoes to drop? And what kinds of things are you watching along the way? Evan, why don't you start? Sure. Well, um, in terms of things that we're watching, the very immediate term um, items are, we're, we're a little bit in the the dark on in terms of deposits. Um, we'll get reports from the banks soon. We're entering earnings season in the next couple of weeks here. So we should get more information there. But in the meantime, we're sort of drawing inferences from uh, what's being drawn in the emergency, the new emergency facility that was put in place and also on the discount window. But clearly the story is not fully written here yet. And the policy response was, was pretty powerful, but bank runs in a way are inherently psychological in nature especially in this new age of very rapid communication, when you can see a single A bank go under overnight, it's, it's very new for us. So it's pretty hard to say we're out of the woods yet. Yeah, I would agree that, you know, predicting exactly how events are going to unfold over the next few days or weeks is really anyone's guess. Our assumption is that the fast and forceful policy response that we saw will deliver at least some stability but again, you know, we will be watching that weekly data on deposits and on Fed lending facilities to see how that plays out. So while the, the near-term picture is, is really murky and uncertain, I do think the more medium-term outlook is, is clear. And that is that we're going to get some kind of credit crunch out of this. Small banks account for 38% of total bank lending. And in some areas like commercial real estate and small business lending, that share is much higher. So even before any of this stress started, we could see in the Fed's senior loan officer survey that the share of banks tightening lending standards was already at levels consistent with previous recessions. Uh, and as small banks face more deposit pressure in a more uncertain environment, those lending standards are only going to tighten further. So this is going to lead to a pullback in lending, some kind of credit crunch, and we think that's sizable enough to cause a recession to start by the middle of the year. Now, Matt, let's talk about some of the economic data that's uh, driving monetary policy. Now, how has the Fed fared in cooling down the jobs picture? I'd say they've had a, a mixed performance. You know, as Powell noted at the, the latest press conference, job gains have averaged 350,000 over the past three months, which is just way too fast to be consistent with the Fed's goals. If you look kind of deeper under the surface, there is a little bit better news. Uh, we've seen hours worked cool off. And wage growth is now below a 4% pace on a three-month trailing basis. But looking at the labor market data we have in hand in totality does suggest that it's still more work for the Fed to do. 
But the challenge, of course, is this is all backward-looking data. We look at more forward-looking data points. We expect a pretty sizable slowdown in jobs growth and rising unemployment. And you know, one of the things we've looked at is survey measures of economic expectations. If we look across various sectors of the economy, small businesses, home builders, consumers, manufacturers, right now expectations for the economy are very pessimistic. And historically, those pessimistic expectations are a pretty solid leading indicator of pending job loss. As these negative expectations become self-fulfilling, as businesses pull back on investing and hiring, and consumers start spending less and saving more. So the backward-looking data is still looking pretty strong, but on a forward-looking basis, things are looking much shakier. Now, Ned, I want to stick with you for a few more threshold macro questions. First of all, what is your work showing you about the future path of inflation from here? And how has recent data on economic activity factored into your view on the possible timing of a recession? So on inflation, it's a similar dynamic where you know it's backward-looking versus forward-looking. And backward-looking trailing data is, again, still way too high. We've seen inflation reaccelerate in January and February, along with some upward revisions that uh, really changed the trajectory for inflation. And so this is why you've seen the Fed, even with the outbreak of banking stress, still maintain a pretty aggressive posture because this trailing inflation data that they're so focused on is still way too high. But again, if you look forward, I think there's a lot of reasons to expect inflation will come down and come down pretty significantly. Thinking about the three ways the Fed breaks up the inflation basket, if we think about goods prices, we've seen substantial healing in supply chains. We've seen goods demand really come down. And there'll be bumps in the road, but we think that goods prices will be outright falling for much of the year. We know that rental prices, rental inflation is going to decelerate significantly. Uh, the Fed itself has acknowledged that based on what's going on in the market for new rents. It's only a matter of time waiting for that to roll over, but by the second half of the year, that should be turning pretty hard. And so that really leaves the rest of services inflation, which is really labor market slack sensitive or sensitive to wage growth. And as I said, there's encouraging reasons to think wage growth will continue to slow down, particularly as unemployment starts to rise. And so in our view, we think inflation is headed to around 3% by the end of this year, and then back to around the Fed's 2% target in 2024. You also asked about uh, recession views. And there, I think, again, it's important to focus not on coincident or lagging data. You know, strong job growth doesn't tell you anything about where we're going. It just tells you where we've been. So our dashboard of leading indicators for some time now has been tracking for a, a mid-year recession start, even before the latest outbreak of stress in the banking sector. If you look at the yield curve being inverted, if you look at the leading economic index being deeply negative at levels never seen without a recession, and even more broadly, if you look at the Fed pushing rates into restrictive territory at a really accelerated pace, all of these would point to a recession starting around the middle of the year. And what we think is going to be a credit crunch really just adds to that scenario. Now, Evan, uh, looking at this from the investment perspective, in the more fundamental work that you and your team are doing in looking at companies' earnings and operating activities, are you seeing any signs of a slowdown in the economy? Yeah, I think it's important to note that really the reason we're in this inflation situation that we're in is because there's been true strength in the economy and, and the recovery and the expansion post-COVID. So, you know, by those measures, when we look at kind of standard fundamental metrics, they've been relatively positive uh, really up until recently. However, as Matt said, you know, all this is backwards looking data. 
And we're certainly seeing the effects of inflation and higher wages on companies' margins already. You're starting to see some inventory problems creep up that really need to get worked through as well. And the extreme speed and magnitude of the tightening of financial conditions is what's of greater concern to us, especially when we think about forward-looking corporate stresses and the default rate going forward. Prior to this banking crisis, credit stresses really hadn't been anything industry-specific, and in our opinion, were more differentiated by balance sheet health. And so our attention has really been on moving out of lower quality segments that we think are at more risk. You know, For example, parts of the loan market, which are this is a floating rate segment that is really just starting to feel the effects of higher interest rates flow through to the borrower's earnings. And you're starting to see leverage metrics spike really at the wrong time in the cycle as it's potentially turning over. We think that's what's most at risk. Now, tighter credit conditions, uh, do you expect them to be tighter going forward? And how will that look? Evan, why don't you start? Sure. I think you know Matt already said it well, but no doubt we're expecting credit conditions to tighten from here. The regional banks are really important institutions for credit creation, especially to the consumer and to small and medium-sized businesses. Now, the ecosystem has evolved somewhat over time with private credit lending, but it's really still important nonetheless. So I think we're really bracing for a credit crunch. Totally agree with that. I mean, you just add up an aggressive Fed, extremely high economic uncertainty, and now pressure on small bank deposits and a lot of uncertainty there. I think uh, a credit crunch is all but guaranteed. And is a credit crunch, I'm, I'm guessing, Matt, is also a harbinger of a recession. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you look at the relationship between credit growth and economic growth, it's a pretty clear one. And so there's a lag of a quarter or two. But as banks pull back and as financial markets become more difficult, it's going to be harder for companies and consumers to borrow, and that's going to result in a recession. So Matt, again, the Fed raised 25 basis points uh, yesterday to bring the the top bound of the range to, um, to 5%. Uh, what do you think the Fed's path is from here? I think really the, the message listening to Powell's press conference was that they're going to wait and see what happens in the coming weeks. Uh, you know, he was clear that these banking sector issues are going to deliver some tightening of their own. He kind of threw out that it could be equivalent to a 25 basis point hike, but that will will tell in the coming weeks. So I think we learned the Fed is, you know, no longer charging blindly uh, ahead with rate hikes. They're going to be more cautious now. You know, the markets interpret that as rate hikes are done and cuts are imminent. I think that's probably too aggressive. We could get another rate hike or two just given the fact that inflation is still so elevated. And it's going to take a while for this coming credit crunch to show up in the economic data and even longer for it to show up in the inflation data. So, you know, there could be a few more hikes in store, but I think we are getting to the end of the hiking cycle. I think the Fed is going to be more reluctant to cut than the market is pricing in, though. There's these analogies to 1998 or 2007 when the Fed cut due to financial sector stress. But if you go back and look, in 1998 when they cut, inflation was at 1.2%. In 2007, it was at 2.1%. We're obviously much higher now, so just a different trade-off in this environment. So we think uh, that we'll be on hold for much of this year, and it's going to take until 2024 for cuts to really get going. But once they do get going, we think they'll cut more deeply than the market is expecting. So Matt, just to follow up there, so the difference between one and maybe two and done or more, 
what exactly do you think the Fed's going to be looking at to help them make that decision? Yeah, I think it's going to be a combination of the inflation data and then also signs of stability or instability in the banking sector. And so they're going to be watching deposit flows. They're going to be watching what banks are saying about credit conditions going forward. And I think if there is some stability coming out of the banks, which Powell indicated in the press conference that over the past week, deposit flows have stabilized, which is new information that hasn't you know, been published. So you know, maybe there are some tentative good signs. If that's the case, and if inflation you know, only moderates at a slow pace, as it has been recently, we could get another couple hikes. Now, Evan, given what Matt's just gone through, what are the portfolio implications from your view of Fed policy going forward? Well, from a rates perspective, I think the ceiling has to be lower from here in terms of most parts of the curve, but especially further out on the interest rate curve. So we're strategically leaning longer duration, although tactically you really have to respect the volatility that we're seeing and, and the ranges. The ranges are quite wide right now, but we think that the the top end of that range sort of has to be lower. The biggest decision for us and really the hardest unknown here is about curve shape. So last year we had been positioned for a curve flattener where we were underweight the front end of the curve as the Fed was hiking and that was the most sensitive to higher interest rates. And that worked very well, but it's a much tougher decision now. So we've neutralized most of that curve view. And the question is, when do you position for steeper curves? History shows that it's generally when the Fed uh, executes its first cut that that's the time when curves will start to steepen. This cycle, uh, it's you know it may have been pulled forward, and the market may be getting ahead of, of the Fed from here. So, given you know, all that's going on, and uh, whether rubber meets the road, of course, is uh, what you're finding attractive or or not in the market. So, Evan, just give us a roundup of what you're seeing in terms of valuations across the fixed income sector. And where are you seeing the most attractive sectors now? Credit largely is somewhere in the fair value range to even slightly wide. So most credit sectors are, say, in the 50th to the 70th percentile in terms of spreads over their long-term histories. However, what really sticks out to us and what are our favorite sectors right now mostly resided within structured credit. Those are at historically wide valuations versus corporates, say, around the 80th percentile. And importantly, we think that the reason they, they're so wide is mostly for technical reasons and not for fundamental credit-driven reasons. And these, you know, a few examples, these are sectors like agency and non-agency RBS and certain subsectors of uh, ABS. So when you say technical reasons, spreads are wider, what exactly are you saying? That's because the, tr the treasury leg of that stool has moved lower, right? But that, that's part of it, the speed at which rates have moved. But really, if you just zoom out and look at last year, Credit spreads widened because fixed income was so out of favor, and it was really disproportionate to quality. So some of the highest quality segments widened the most because there was just real fear around fixed income broadly and around duration risk. And and how about the, just uh, top line yields? Uh, have those come down with the treasury curve? They have to some degree, but again, looking much longer term, we're still at historically high yields that you haven't been able to accomplish within the fixed income market uh, or attain in quite a long time since basically the financial crisis. And it, what about in the banking and financial sectors in particular? Are you, you seeing any dislocations there? 
Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on in banking credit right now. Coming into the crisis, in this, this most recent episode, financials and banks were screening relatively cheap, mostly for supply reasons. They had been um, issuing an elevated amount of supply this year. Obviously, everything's widened from here. Regionals especially are, are much wider now. But what's interesting is Money Center, GCIB banks, take a JP Morgan or Bank of America, for example, their spreads are basically unchanged versus two weeks ago. You know, recording this podcast about right on two weeks anniversary of the Silicon Valley collapse, while at the same time, broader investment grade industrial spreads are 25 to 30 basis points wider of that time, just in a risk off bout. And I think that that speaks to a few things that that money will probably be shifting towards these GCIB banks and the large banks. So the fundamentals over time are better. And there's also been a priority on liquidity within banking sectors. And so they've been in favor, but it's hard to pound the table on them specifically. Uh, what we tend to like more structurally over the long term is other areas of, of the financial sector, such as insurance and other sm smaller categories that generally trade structurally wide. Well, great. Now, Matt, turning back to you for a second. So the US has reached its borrowing capacity level. And we're now in the process of taking extraordinary actions to keep our government a going concern, as they say. Um, how do you think this debt limit debate will play out? It's going to be messy. You know, this has kind of been overshadowed in, in recent weeks by uh, the banking sector issues. But, you know, it's, it's never easy to raise the debt ceiling. But I think our current situation makes it even more difficult with, you know, divided government, narrow majorities, an election coming up in 2024. We have this legacy of, in hindsight, what looks like excessive fiscal stimulus that has caused a lot of the inflation that we're seeing. Um, so no one is you know, eager to give the green light um, to let the government borrow more. So we think it's going to be a, a messy and volatile debate. Ultimately, this will get done. Consequences of not doing so are, are too calamitous. But we think that the cost of that could be more fiscal tightening, that Democrats will have to agree in some form with Republican demands to cut spending. And so when you look at an economy that's already weakening and heading toward recession, if we have the volatility uncertainty associated with this debt ceiling debate, and then some fiscal tightening on top of that, you know, that's not a, a great outlook for the growth picture. Now, Evan, the, the, the banking crisis, of course, and, and soon to be the playing out of the debt limit debate, uh, you know, we're having some historic rate volatility. Uh, what effect is all of this having on credit? And what is our strategy to manage something like that? Yeah, that's very true, Jay. As you mentioned at the top of the podcast, the move index, which measures implied volatility on interest rates, got up to around 200 basis points uh, within the last week. Now it's back to around 150, but that's still very elevated. Um, and it certainly feels like it too. And it's been an extension of rate ball from last year as well. So last year, we think this volatility had a profound effect on credit spreads. Um, and as I mentioned already, sort of disproportional to the quality uh, where higher quality sectors uh, were hit harder than lower quality sectors um, because they tend to have more duration risk. So for example, investment grade corporates underperformed high yield and loans uh, when you sort of beta adjust those. Um, we thought that opportunity last year was a really uh, attractive um, uh, opportunity that to rotate out of lower grade sectors and into higher quality sectors. Um, but more broadly, we think this crisis will certainly weigh on spreads for a bit. 
And with rates resetting lower, credit spreads are now naturally wider. So ideally, they can provide a cushion. So we think that a strategic allocation to credit makes sense to help mute volatility in a broader portfolio, but selection is really key. Well, you you set me up for my next question then, uh, which is, given everything we've talked about, Evan, how are you and your team positioning portfolios in a very general way right now? And what's your general portfolio strategy going forward? Well, in general, we're relatively neutral in terms of both duration and credit risk somewhere near home. Um, but like I mentioned, bias towards these higher grade spread sectors. I think one part of our strategy uh, that's you know important to emphasize is that um, diversification, I think, is is quite important going forward, both at the subsector level and at the issuer level. And it's really an undervalued risk management technique that people often forget about because it may seem so obvious. But in this environment where you can have defaults literally overnight, um, you know, your your sizing and your diversity within your portfolio is, is quite important. And are you keeping anything extra as a, as a liquidity buffer or are you kind of par for the course? No, we are, um, especially with the opportunity cost of cash uh, being much less than it has been in the past because you can earn, uh, you know, respectable yields in the front end. Um, we're letting cash balances grow mildly, but also our treasury balances across most portfolios are at the higher end that they've been over the last, um, you know, five plus years. Uh, and in in certain strategies, we've also layered in risk hedges because we're uh, preparing for that environment where credit spreads are uh, continue to be under pressure and in the situation where this banking crisis isn't done. Well, thank you both for, for all of your time today. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I would just say, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about the near-term picture. It's really easy to get focused on day-to-day -day headlines, but I think the medium-term outlook is a lot clearer given the economic and policy backdrop. And that is, a recession, though not overly severe, is coming. Inflation is going to come down significantly. And that as we get into 2024, the Fed is going to be cutting rates quite significantly. Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize the uncertainty that, that we're navigating through. Um, but that also creates a lot of opportunities for active management. And so we think that now that rates and spreads have reset higher, um, fixed income broadly has an important place for investors in their, in their portfolios. Great. Again, thank you guys so much for your time, Matt and Evan. I know that there's a lot going on. You're very busy. Uh, but uh, please come again and visit soon. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, Jay. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for Matt or Evan or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond. We look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. 
The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. Structured credit, including asset-backed securities or ABS, mortgage-backed securities and CLOs are complex investments and not suitable for all investors. Investors in structured credit generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some structured credit investments may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile and they're subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risks to investing in loans directly, including credit risk, interest rate risk, counterparty risk and prepayment risk. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors LLC.